Welcome to Startup Camel. Today we have Dor Schooler here in the studio to tell us about his startup, Intuition Robotics, and their smart tech, LEQ, for seniors. This episode is sponsored by Rise Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv's number one space for fintech. Rise Tel Aviv offers office space, mentorship, and fintech events on a nightly basis. Have a fintech company or want to get involved? Contact them today at www.thinkrise.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Startup Camel. I'm your host, Adir Freyloff, recording out of Mindspace in the center of Tel Aviv, Israel, where our banknotes have Braille markings. Today, we are visited by Dor Schooler, co-founder of a startup called Intuition Robotics. Let's just get right into it, Dor. What is Intuition Robotics? Give us your elevator pitch. Sure. So Intuition Robotics is a startup company out of Israel. And our goal is to help older adults keep connected and engaged and help them overcome the digital divide so that they can flourish and excel in the next phase of their life, which is basically the retirement age. Awesome. I mean, if you pop in Intuition Robotics, LEQ kind of stuff, you get all sorts of cool videos. There's really cool marketing, I guess, videos and pretty informative. And it looks awesome. I had asked that if you can maybe bring LEQ, but I heard she's still in production kind of thing. Along the journey to entrepreneurship, growing up, were you more of a lemonade stand kid or a late bloomer? <laughs> Definitely a lemonade stand kid. <laughs> no, no doubt about it. Even in elementary school, there were friends of mine that put a band together. So, of course, I was the manager of the band, <laughs> created little cassettes for those in your audience that knows what those are and uh, sold them on a stand. So not lemonade, but a cassette right, stand. Fair, fair. <laughs> what was the actual first business idea that you had? My first startup, I guess, was at age... 23, right as I left the army. So I started my first startup. It was called Zing Interactive Media. And we made radio interactive. So if you heard a song or an ad you liked in the US, you can hit pound three to one on any cell phone, give us the name of the radio station, and either interact with the advertisement or buy the song. Wow. This is, that is in 99, 2000 era wow, where voice cool. recognition wasn't really all that great. Awesome. Sounds cool. How and when did you come up with the idea for Intuition and Robotics? So my co-founders, Roy, Ty, and I spent five years together in Alcatel-Lucent, where we um, created a new business inside of a large company around the cloud space for telcos and built that team to a few hundred people, helped create a brand new market, sales, you know, the whole nine yards, a very successful team today. And when that reached maturity, I decided to move on. Every five years or so, I try to leave what I'm doing and completely reinvent myself. <laughs> so from, from media to cybersecurity to wow. uh, telecom to being a corporate wank for a while to cloud computing and now this. And this time around, it was important to me and my co-founders to do something with high social impact. I know it might sound altruistic, but we really did want to try and help and leave our mark in the world. Or another way to put it is you can only do B2B for so long before you go nuts. The most fun I've had in my career was my first startup, which was consumer-facing. And we thought that if we pick a problem which is huge and nobody else is working on, we might be able to make a difference. And that's what brought us towards helping older adults with loneliness and social isolation, which in fact is one of the biggest epidemics that's facing the modern generation. Sad to hear, but glad that you're working on it, obviously. Thank you. What's the origin of the name Intuition Robotics? I mean, it's semi-self-explanatory, but go into it a little bit. How'd you pick the name? Yeah, so if your listeners will go to leq.com, E-L-L-I-Q.com, they'll see our product. And one of the first things you'll notice is it's a completely different way of interacting between humans and technology. And yes, we focused that on older adults, but the technology was built with that in mind. So we're trying to, instead of, if you think of the way we've been working with tech until now, 
in the beginning, a f- very, very few of us learned how to put cards with holes in big machines. And then more of us learned how to code. And then it became more accessible and more of us learned how to write DOS commands or click a mouse. And then even more people learned how to swipe, of course, and lately with voice commands. But it's always us learning how to talk to a machine. And it's always using only one modality, only one input language, a swipe, a touch, a keyboard, or a voice command with a very specific syntax. We felt that technology has reached a point. And if we really want to reduce barriers and allow people that are not tech savvy to enjoy and have tech as part of their daily life and routine, we need to change that paradigm. And therefore, we created a set of interactions where basically the AI or the robot learns how to talk to you as opposed to you learning how to talk to it. And just as us humans communicate, we don't only use voice, even though this is a podcast, right? <laughs> Studies show that voice communication is only about 10% on how we communicate. It's our body language. It's our facial expressions. It's our use of silence, our tone of voice. All of those really, really matter in the way we communicate. And therefore, we gave LEQ the ability to use body language, where we mimic human body language, and other modalities such as light and movement and sounds and a persona which adjusts itself towards the person in front of us to create a brand new interaction model. So it's intuitive to communicate with it. It's really cool. Is the reception from the senior citizens, how is it? I mean, you must have done some testing and seen what they think. Are they scared a little bit? Because I feel like people are scared of technology. You know, I gave my grandmother, who's 94 now, a phone. I think she was 90 at the time. So she's had an iPhone for four years, which is pretty good. More advanced than most senior citizens that I know. And she was scared in the beginning, you know. New technology in general is scary for people, but especially people who haven't been using technology their whole life, like our age range, you know. So what's the reception from senior citizens? Yeah, I think you hit on a very good point. I mean, look, we're assuming that older adults will have an easy time using technology that wasn't built for them, right? And there are a few things that are different. First of all, older adults can learn anything you and I can learn. But it takes them more time and a lot more effort. So basically, learning new things, our ability to learn new things decreases as we grow older. And the rate of change of things around us is not going down, and it's not even static. It's only going up. And it's not even a one-time thing on the move from analog to digital. This is a continuation of a problem that's only exasperating, where there is a growing wedge between our ability to learn new things and the new things that surround us. Just take a quick example. CDs, right? They disappeared. So we really expect... You know, your grandma might be very special, but I would even venture to say she might have a hard time streaming Spotify to her Bluetooth speakers, sure. right? But she wants her music, right? And music does great things for the soul. And what about ordering rides? And what about ordering movies? And what about just sending pictures and uh, communicating with the grandkids? And all of those things become very, very difficult. So that's kind of the premise. As far as your actual question on the reception, the reception actually is much better than we ever thought. We weren't sure that older adults will be willing to talk to a machine, not to mention be willing to give them a place in their day-to-day life. And what we found is a lot maybe because of the industrial design that we've done, and we work with Yves Bahar in San Francisco, a super gifted designer and his studio Fuse Project. And what we were looking for is to create a disarming design. If you look at LEQ, she doesn't look like a robot from a science fiction movie at all. You see a screen that usually shows family pictures and this almost lamp shaped entity, which is small and beautifully designed. And then she just wakes up from time to time and has opinions on things and nudges you and might say, hey, dear, it's really nice out today. Why don't you consider going for a walk? 
or in her proactivity, she might say, she won't wait for you to approach her like an Alexa. She might say, hey, let's listen to some Beatles, right? Or there's a great new lecture by so-and-so on such-and-such. Maybe do you want to hear it, right? Or don't forget, it's Adir's birthday today. Should we call him? Right? So flipping the engagement model from waiting from the older adult or any of us, frankly, to initiate a discussion to the reverse of the AI initiating the discussion, together with a very disarming industrial design, together with this new mode of interaction we spoke of in the front, is creating something very special. And the reception has been so far just in tests and so on. But we've worked with over 100 families and of older adults. Just has been spectacular. Seems that you put some thought into this. Um, first of all, you said one thing, which is that the technology is actually made for them. And that's a very unique thing because, you know, the Alexa and the other type of engaging Siri kind of stuff, all is made for the average person. I mean, they're not thinking about older people. So to engage older people in using the new technology is what's scary for them because it actually isn't made for them. So it's kind of unique and nice that there is technology being created for senior citizens, like kind of the forgotten people. And you said, like, before it's an epidemic, which is crazy. All right, moving on, you know, in the startup world, one of the big things people are after is money. So I like to talk a little bit about the funding process. So why did you seek funding and where did you allocate the money? So like any startup, we seeked funding to build a business and to grow the business. It was incredibly difficult in the beginning. We had 82 no's before we had yeses. You know, the definition of insanity is repeating the same exact thing and hoping for different results. So <laughs> I don't know, there's a, there's a line somewhere between persistence and craziness, and I'm not sure which side of that line we're on. But nevertheless, we're able to raise our seed money a little bit more than a year and a half ago, and we raised a, a very large A round a few months ago. Can you share the numbers? Or sure. Yeah, yeah it's, it's all on Crunchbase. We raised just shy of $2 million in our seed. Wow and $15 million in our A round. Wow. Yeah. Where we allocated it, mainly to R&D, although maybe a bit different from other companies you might interview, our very first hire was a gerontologist, which actually works with older adults. Her gerontology is the science of aging. Um, so the first thing we did is started learning and interviewing older adults and understanding their routine and their day-to-day -day and the difficulties they have in using technology and started doing mock-ups and we put Alexas in people's homes and videotaped their interactions and, you know, created many, many early versions and kind of 3D printed mock-ups before we ever build the product. But if you look at our team makeup, the vast majority of the team are software engineers, machine learning types, full-stack developers, Android developers, and the business side of the team is still very slim. Very cool. There's this illusion in the startup world that everybody's succeeding, and, and, and when I have a company like yours, it got 15 million plus, 2 million, so 17 million so far in funding, and you haven't started really the launch truly yet to be profitable. It seems all cheery, you know? I want to hear about some of the harder times of Intuition Robotics. Tell us about your darkest hour. <laughs> sure. <Dara>. Which one? <laughs> um, and I, I think the, the hardest time was, um, was in the beginning. I mean, raising as I mentioned, or before that even? no, no, the raising of the funds. Uh, we were very clear on what we wanted to do once we studied the space. And especially in Israel, but I think it's true anywhere in the VC community, there's very much of a herd mentality. And the herd mentality around our space goes something like this. Israelis don't know to do consumer. Israelis don't know how to do hardware. Nobody can ever make money in the aging sector, right? These are just, quote, known type of things. No, it's, it's, a, known, it's a known truth, right? <laughs> um, just like Israeli companies can't build stuff for cars, 
until they do. Yeah. Right? I would say it's hard to say Israelis can't and anything after that. Uh, right. Based I think on the history at this point. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and, you know, the point we were trying to make to investors is, well, you know, really the big opportunities are in the white spaces and not in repeating what other people have done before. Right? I assume the next huge company is not going to be a search company, you know, or an identity social network company. It will be something else, yeah. which, you know, hasn't been done before. But anyway, so, so yeah, this was quite a few months of just um, hearing a lot of no's. We did get some angel support, but we knew that this is an expensive project. And therefore, we never actually called the capital from our angels until we knew we reached a bar. And uh, we were self-funding everything for a few months. And we got to the point where, you know, if we don't raise money in the next 30 to 60 days, that's it. We'll move on. So that, that was pretty dark. Amazing. You're entering into a space that has some competition. It's like engaging AI like uh, Alexa and what's the Apple one called? Well, it's really Alexa and Google Home and and then there's Siri from Apple. Correct, correct. But what kind of separates you is that you are creating this specifically for senior citizens where all the others that are in the space are just like home assistants to people who are used to technology. But is there an intimidation factor or anything as far as what's on the market already because in general these are monster companies you know apple amazon and google google yeah (laughs) yeah so you're entering into their space obviously it's a nice niche what you have with the senior citizens either you can embrace it and learn from their mistakes and learn from what they're doing because they're really all about getting like first to market and all that stuff or it can affect you tell us about what's going on there. yeah i think you know to be fair if you put a list of the three people you least want to compete against i think <laughs> amazon google and apple would probably be those three <laughs> but i don't think they're direct competitors at least not yet firstly we use a lot of their tech our speech to text is done through google our nlp is done through google our machine learning we're using the google service we work closely with amazon on text-to-speech and other aspects. But clearly, you see where they're going, and they're, they started with voice assistants that are kind of like Pringle Box speakers. <laughs> and now with Amazon releasing Echo Show, you see that they're moving to multimodality of a screen plus a speaker and so on. I think at the end of the day, what's going to differentiate us are a few things. First and foremost is the intent and the mission. Okay? The mission of these devices is to become the new point of sale at the home. Amazon wants to sell you services like Prime and Music and others, and they want to sell you goods, right? Alexa, buy paper towels, and they'll magically appear, and maybe you'll be less price sensitive, but for sure you'll buy through Amazon any way you cut it. Where our goal is to help older adults become more interactive and more connected, more engaged, and live a fuller life. And that is a very, very big difference that then drives every decision you make, the ecosystem you're playing with, the relationship you're trying to create with the customer. Technologically, there are very big differences for now. These are huge companies. They can do whatever they want with huge speed, and they're very, very talented individuals. I think the two or the three biggest differences we have right now are first and foremost the fact that it's a proactive system and not a reactive system. That's not flipping a switch. To create a fully autonomous system that understands what's happening, or at least tries to, understand what's happening at home, understands what your goals are, and then suggest activities based on your goals and based on its understanding of the context to try to motivate you to change your behavior is not flipping a switch. It's not, okay, I'll talk instead of listen, right? It's not a timer that says at 12.05, I will suggest for you to listen to music. It's all based on a fully autonomous agent making actual decisions in real time. 
So that's a huge difference. The second, of course, is the multimodality. While we're, we're happy to see Amazon uh, move from voice to voice and screen, we're using movement, we're using lights, we're using a screen, we're using sound effects, we're using tone of voice, and the content that we tell you is different per person. So basically, LEQ adjusts herself to the type of persona we identified that she needs to be to motivate you. So for example, if she's going to suggest that we go for a walk, right? To you, she might say, hey, dear, it's a nice day. You might want to consider going for a walk. For your grandma, maybe that's a bit too intrusive. So all she'll do is make a sound to call her attention and a movement to call her attention. She'll look at the screen and on the screen will be the weather report and a note saying you haven't gone for a walk yet this week. And for me, she might say, Dory, you putz, you've been watching TV for six hours. Come on, do something. It's a nice day out, right? All the decision making is the same, but the output is very, very different. And of course, then there's the design and all the decisions we made in order to make this usable and hopefully a wonderful user experience for older adults to be proven. User experience, I think, is what it's about. And because it's catered specifically to older adults, that's why it's special, I think, for them. Correct. Uh, frankly, we still have to prove a lot of that. I think user experience is more art than science. We have a lot of tools in our toolbox, and we have to see that if we're able to create a magical experience. Along the way, did you have a pivot in the business at all, or you knew exactly what you were going for with LEQ and with Intuition Robotics in general? No, I don't think we've done a pivot yet. I think all the fundamentals are there to continue doing what we're doing. We've done a lot of tests along the way to make us, of course, fine-tune and so on, but I wouldn't call it a pivot. I think startups usually pivot when they fail doing what they set out to do, and we haven't been in the market yet, so we might pivot later. <laughs> <laughs> to be able to get $17 million, you know, you had to come up with a financial model. How do you come up with the assumptions in the financial model? Because besides just measuring out the market of what you're entering into, which is almost immeasurable because there's a lot of older people in the world, but almost none of them use technology or very minimal technology. So how do you come up with numbers to get money from people? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't think early stage companies need to fret too much about financial models if you're doing something very big and very disruptive. So 25 to 30 percent of the world's population are going to be older adults, okay, in the next 20 to 30 years. In the States, 11,000 Boomers retire every single day. Wow. That's okay. crazy. So uh, this is kind of, uh, there's no doubt there's money on the other side of the rainbow. By the way, 70% of all disposable income is with people 55 plus. So there's, there's no question. There's no question about the need when you talk to anybody in the industry or frankly anyone that has an older adult in their family. So while we created models and so on, I think for an early stage company, you need to find investors that believe in your vision. They believe in the problem. They believe about your unique approach in solving that problem. Of course, believe in your ability to execute against that. And technology is a part of that. It's not the only part of that. And that's what you should focus on in seed investments because whatever financial model you will create in the beginning is going to change. Of course, as the company matures, we get a lot more fine-tuned. But still, to answer your question, we took comparables. How much do you spend on a good laptop would be a good place to start. My grandmother just got a new one. I try to always convince her to get Apple, but she gets uh, IBM or something. Uh, during the fundraising process, I always am curious, like, when do you put in there that you'll start paying yourself? You know, you started off taking money out of your own pocket. You're putting it in. You know, you need to survive, obviously. And in the startup world, I think a lot of people are younger and they're not really established. The investors don't want just the money going into your pocket. They want all the money going into the business, let's say. So 
curious on when you start paying yourself, and do you get any pushback from the investors because of it? Uh, so, of course, until we raised money, we, you know, we were funding the business, not the other way around, and we, of course, never asked for any of that back from our investors. But I do think once you raise capital, you said the money should go into the business. The founders are the heart and soul of the business. And this is not a sprint, right? At least my business is not a sprint. There are companies who can flip and do things in a year. This is not a one-year journey. So I don't, we had no problems with our investors. They understand that for us to be able to sustain this, we need to be able to live comfortably, not luxuriously, okay? <laughs> but we shouldn't be... If I was an investor, I would want the founders focused on building the business and not focused on how do they pay their mortgage at the end of the month, right? Because their energies will go in the wrong place. So I, I've never seen that as a problem. As long as, you know, you're within industry norms and you're not there to make real money out of your investor's capital, you just need to be able to... Stay afloat, basically. To stay afloat and be able to focus on building the business and not on paying your mortgage. How did you convince the first investor to give you money? I think there's a combination. I think in an early stage company... It's probably one part vision, vision, problem, et cetera, and one part team, if not two parts team and, you know, to one part vision. At the end of the day, when you're two or three founders with a PowerPoint and maybe a little demo asking for big dollars from people when you have not much to show for it except your ambition and your belief in something, who you are, who you are as a team, how well you work together as a team how well you complement each other. A startup is a seven to 10 year journey and founders should take that into account. You know, you're gonna spend more time with your co-founders than with your wife and your family. And I think that played a, a real part in it. I think our early investors were able to build trust with us and we were able to build trust with them and they liked the team and they liked what we're trying to accomplish and they knew it's highly risky. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, that's what they're investing in, the people that they're giving the money to, not just the idea. Of course, the idea has to be something good, but if you're impassioned, you're, they can see that and they can feel that you're going to work hard to gain momentum and stuff, then they'll be yeah. happier to give you some yeah, money. Yeah, your obviously. track record, for sure, yeah. What was the hardest or most difficult question asked during the fundraising process by an investor? I don't know if there was one hardest 80, question. Because 82 no's, which is amazing. I mean, it yeah. just shows you that you have to stay optimistic because every no brings you closer to a yes. You know, that's a sales thing. Yeah, but you know what? Every no, I mean, a you lot of them were hard-earned, right? I mean, right? Most of them were our mistakes. Yeah. And a lot of them we messed up because they asked us a question we couldn't answer because our thinking, you know, we, well, hasn't evolved to that point yet. And actually, in the discussion with the investor was the first time we encountered it, Right. right. And I think that kind of sets apart what I would call a true seed investor or the type of investor that was a good fit for us. When we encounter a moment like that, do they join you on the same side of the table and say, well, let's think about that together? Or do they see it as a test and say, oh, you didn't answer question number 17 correctly. Um, so, you know, here's the yeah, door. You don't really want that kind of investor, actually, that's looking for you to make a mistake. You know, you want to be able to engage them, obviously. Last financial question. I get a different answer for this every time, but how do you come up with your valuation before you get money? Because, you know, it's worth nothing without you, obviously, the company. And how can you get $2 million and know exactly what you're giving them for that? What do you do to come up with what the value of your company is before it really exists, you know? Yeah, it's all funny math. There's no formula. There's absolutely no formula. I think it's a mix between what does the business actually need? And our goal in the seed was 
very kind of wide-eyed or very open-eyed approach of saying, okay, where does the company need to be in order to be in a position to reliably raise an A round, right? Okay. And from there, we worked on what the budget would take from that. And then if you can convince an investor that that should be the size of the funding round, because you will be able to reach that milestone and it's a reasonable milestone, et cetera, et cetera, then it becomes more of a math equation of what's common in the industry, knowing that there'll be more capital that will come later on. Is there a big enough incentive that's staying for the entrepreneurs? What are the capital requirements or the equity requirements of your investor? And the discussion was less on, prove to me that you are worth X million dollars based on a discounted cash flow model. And that, 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 because you really don't know. It's more like, all right, I agree with you. You need $2 million. All right. Am I willing to give you the $2 million? Yes. Do I think that you can execute against that plan? Yes. All right. Now, what's a fair arrangement in equity yeah. around, I think, for seed, right? As, as the company matures, it's a different story. Already. Yeah, because you're already prepping it and you can see the forward progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can, now you can start quantifying. That's why it's called seed money, you know? I yeah. Guess. The A round was very much easier. Different. I'm sure. It wasn't. The, it wasn't. No. I, I don't really I know. Guess I mean, fifteen million versus two million it sounds like it actually should be harder, right? <laughs> it should be harder. We plan to launch an official kind of um, roadshow for our A, but then we were very, very lucky to be approached by Toyota Research Institute, which is the kind of the new arm of Toyota built in Palo Alto and in Boston, mm. where they're building their self-driving cars and their robots. Very, very big effort, very well funded. They saw what we do. They've spent a lot of time looking at robots for the elderly, so they understood the space. They came very well educated and appreciated what we bring to the table. And frankly, we had one conversation. They flew to Israel the next week. They spent 48 hours with us, and we got an offer for an investment. Amazing. That and was they, your and A they round said from That Toyota. was our A round, yeah. Wow, very and cool. And other people joined, of course, like iRobot, and we took great investors from Israel. Awesome. Yeah. Considering how much experience you've had presenting to investors, give us a really good tip when presenting to them. Yeah, I'll give a few for whatever they're worth. I think the most important thing that I believe in, and it's not for everybody, is being transparent from the first meeting and not coming in with a sales pitch, but coming in with a story and a narrative. What I found is the worst meetings I've had with investors is when I came to sell them on the company. The best meetings I had is when I came to tell them our story and what we're trying to do and be very open from the first meeting on what's difficult and what we know and what we don't know and what we're hoping to learn and dispel by when and how. And I think that creates, because the real relationship with the investor starts after the investment, not before the investment. They're going to be on your board. They're going to be key towards big decisions you need to make. They're going to be hard times and you're going to need them to be there for you. And they're happy to help you achieve your goal. So I think starting from the first meeting on what type of a relationship do I want to have with my investors and how can I use the pitching process in order to navigate the relationship that I want to build and also use that as a filter to see if this is the right person for me or not to enter this partnership. You know, there's this concept where you're trying to get money, so you'll just take it from anywhere. But really, you want to find a partnership because you're about to spend a lot of time together and energy together and money, obviously. And you want to have the right fusion together to make something special. Yeah, absolutely. And there are a lot of companies that met their fate, not just because of 
timing and execution, but also because of bad relationships between founders and investors. For sure, for sure. I've heard of blocked purchases, like company was about to be bought and the investors said no, and then the founder wanted to get out, and that's like a very bad place to be in. I know you're not quite to market yet, but give us a great marketing tip that you use to maybe either for investors or research or what you will be doing for marketing LEQ. Yeah, so we are, we are very public on what we're doing. And if any of your listeners go on our website, you'll see the PR we got. And that would be my main tip is be very clear about the story you want to tell and tell it. Tell it in a compelling and a human way that's easy to understand and connect to people on an emotional level. I think PR is the, look, it's, a, it's asymmetric warfare, okay, when you go against the big guys. They have brand recognition. They have thousands and thousands of salespeople. They have a marketing budget, which is much larger than any money you're able to raise. The only way to beat that is through PR, I think. And the only way to get journalists interested in what you're doing is to, build, to have an interesting story, which is unique and can connect to them in a human level. So that, to me, is a big one. And I see a lot of companies kind of are so focused on either afraid to tell their story or focus on the technology and the bits and bytes as opposed to the so what of it all. They're separating themselves from the actual project, I guess, in the human aspect, you mean, right? Well, I think they're just technologists, and they get super excited about the mousetrap. And the value is not that you build a better mousetrap. The value is that, you know, you won't have mice in your kitchen anymore, right? <laughs> if that makes any sense. I don't know where that no, came I from. Gotcha, but... gotcha. Describe the difference between working for someone else's company versus working for yourself. Frankly, very little, I have to say. I mean, I, I, maybe I was very fortunate where my two roles in corporate, I built businesses inside of corporate as kind of an entrepreneur. You always have stakeholders. Even when you run your own company, you have your board of directors, you have your investors. You have your employees, which are just as much stakeholders, and I believe should be treated as stakeholders. Of course, you have a lot more freedom on building the type of culture you're looking for, choosing where the office will be, and, uh, and so on. But at the end of the day, I think this is a people's business, and it's a culture business, and it's an accountability business. And it doesn't matter if once you're managing people, right? If you manage a group inside of a large company, and you are able to get autonomy in how you do that, or if you manage a separate company, there aren't big differences as long as you're able to communicate effectively and get the mandate that you're looking for to deliver. I guess in your field, that's kind of like how it works that you felt or you were pretty much on your own building within the business. So that's unique, I think, but cool. Let's talk a bit more about Intuition Robotics. How many people working with you now? Where are you guys working out of? So we're working out of beautiful Ramat Gan, Israel, <laughs> with an office in Los Altos, California. There are about 23 full-time people with a large number of contractors, some of them full-time for a certain amount of time, some of them partners, and, and, and a lot of people in the ecosystem that are helping us. What is the next goal for Intuition Robotics, and are you hiring? So we are hiring, both in the Valley and here in Israel. So we're looking for tech talent, here and we're looking for go-to-market talent, customer support and operation talent in the Valley. So please, please, if you're interested, take a look at the company and, and, and shoot us a note. The next step is very clear. We're going to enter beta tests with a few dozen users in the next few months. And as we spoke about in the beginning of this discussion, we will fail or succeed based on the 
quality of the user experience we create. So this is where we're at right now, testing that and fine-tuning that. And based on the results of the beta test, we'll either start selling the product immediately thereafter, or more likely, we'll learn and fine-tune and learn and fine-tune and then launch a little bit later. Cool. We are moving on to the second part of the interview that we like to call the camel race. I think for some reason people think about camels in desert here in Israel. Although Tel Aviv, I don't see many camels. I'm going to ask you a series of questions and you can give us some short but inspiring answers. So first question, what wakes you up in the morning? I think one of the beautiful things about what we're doing and why we're able to get such amazing people to help the project from people like Yves Bahar to unbelievable professors in academia and so on, is that this is the real problem. And whenever I feel like I'm having a hard time, I just go talk to some of our potential customers and some of the users of the prototype of the system, and you see how people light up and how much you really have an opportunity to change their lives, and that's really all it takes for me. You're making me want to get this from my grandma. Well, <laughs> give me an ETA. You have an estimated time of... Uh... We can sign her up to the beta. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. Do you have a morning routine? If so, what is it? Nothing really interesting. Uh, my morning routine is all about trying to get the girls out to school and daycare and then start my day with traffic in Israel. It's a good time to make phone calls. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Glimpse into your toolbox. Give us one tool that you think everyone should know about, whether it's a piece of hardware or software, besides LEQ, obviously. Using the phone... What I find is people forgot to talk to other people. We send emails and texts and LinkedIn messages and social media feeds and tweets, but I keep on reminding my team, just call the person, build a personal relationship with them. I think we are getting too, yeah, it's all too sterile with this medium. As I mentioned before, this is a people's business. Any business is a people's business. And I think we're forgetting the human factor. So the phone or video chat, even better. Give us a small change that you made that had a big impact on your productivity. <laughs> Surrounding myself with people that are much more productive than me. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. They're inspiring uh, I'll, I'll you. That's, you, I guess, uh, what it is. I stopped running after emails. There's so many other ways to get in touch with me for things that are really important that running after emails and spending out. I'd rather work with my team and do emails later than having this constant need to be up to date. How do you stay inspired and motivated through some of the harder times of the startup world? Frankly, and maybe it's because this is not my first venture, something actually I'm working on to change is I don't feel that I'm experiencing the highs, but I'm also not experiencing the lows. You're just going through the motions. Just like, no, just like chugging along, yeah. you know, and when good things happen, it's great. And when bad things happen, we'll fix them. But... I haven't, and which is something we need to fix because we need to celebrate successes, and it's important for the team, and I'm trying to improve on that. Okay. Good luck with it. It's an important thing for sure. Who do you seek advice from? I try to find in each one of the domains that we encounter the smartest person I can possibly get to. So as opposed to kind of go to the usual suspects, we make a conscious effort of really looking for the best informed person we can possibly reach through networking. And it's been very successful for us. So we knew nothing about robotics as a team. So the first person we reached out to was the CTO of iRobot, Paolo, which is awesome. And he taught us, you know, a lot, right? We knew nothing about design. So we went to arguably one of the best designers, Yves Bahar, and begged for him to help us. We knew very little about great user experience. So we reached out to Professor Don Norman, who's the legendary 
person that started the HCI movement. He wrote, literally wrote the books on human-centric design. He's the guru designer from Apple. By the way, 82 years old and still leading the design lab in UCSD. Wow, cool. So we try to repeat that, right? Now we're trying to figure out pricing. We've reached some of the most amazing people in pricing for tech products. So that's how we approach it. That's interesting. I mean, you, you want to get into the podcast world, so you reached out to the best podcast. Um, <laughs> listen, I think that it's really smart because if you are passionate about what you're doing and you're reaching out to the leaders in what you're specifically trying to improve, they're going to feel that and want to help you. And I think that's really smart way to look at it. Like, I think specifically to the entrepreneurs that might be listening that have a social impact agenda, people care. I think if I would have approached the same experts with something that they didn't relate to emotionally, I'm not sure they would have helped us. But because yeah. this... Most of them are going to have parents that are, you know, older. Yeah, yeah, but the same if you're dealing on something to help people in another way. For sure. And you will never know if you don't try. For sure. If people can connect to it. If you could go back in time and change one thing along the startup journey, what would you have done differently? So look, we're, we're a young company. So I think it's, you know, A, we're no place to give advice because we haven't succeeded yet. And B, we don't have enough runway that we've made humongous mistakes that, you know, we can learn from. Probably if I look at, as I mentioned, the hardest times we had were in the beginning so far. So probably we would have done more upfront as far as making our ideas come to reality, maybe worked on prototypes before we went out to raise money because it took a long time to raise money and, you know, we, we could have just done it. So maybe that's one early lesson that I can share. Okay. What would be your advice to aspiring entrepreneurs? Choose your partners extremely carefully. I think really what's helping us a lot is the fact that we've worked together for five and a half years before starting this company. We kept the same job. So in, in CloudBand, in the activity we had before, Itai ran R&D, Roy ran product, I ran the team. It's a very egoless environment. We don't always agree, but we love each other, right? And I think that's super, super important. It's amazing that in a robotics type of company here, everything is all about human interaction and how you need to get along well on a human level because that is the truth and it doesn't matter that you're in the world of robots, but that's like that fear where robots will replace humans in so many different things. If you give us, though, your birth date and social security number, we'll <laughs> enter it into the robot system so when they take over the world, they'll spare you. <laughs> We are in the center of the startup nation. There are so many great and innovative ideas coming out like yours. Give us an Israeli startup that you think we should all be looking out for. There's so many. I, I, you know, there's no like one specific name I want to give, but I do think that the whole field of AI-driven interactions is starting to be more interesting here. So I'm not talking about machine learning-based systems that are pattern recognition of, you know, Teach a machine, show it 10,000 pictures of a car, and then the, the system will know how to recognize the next picture if it's a car or not. <laughs> but I mean systems that are more based on interactions, that are more based on multiple sensory input and not just a single input, that are based on decision-making capabilities. The reason I'm excited about that is those need multidisciplinary skills. And what I'm always amazed when I meet Israeli entrepreneurs is their utter lack of fear in dealing with multidisciplinary aspects where often you'll find in, in other areas people are very, very good, maybe better in a specific discipline, but bringing multiple disciplines together and allowing that to happen is very, I think is the, the biggest competitive advantage of Israeli entrepreneurs. And this is a space that requires that. 
Very cool. Dora, this has been an, an amazing interview. I mean, really, getting you in here is great. Sharing all the advice and experiences, I really appreciate the time you've taken out. Tell us how to reach you, and we'll say goodbye. Sure. So to sign up for the product, <laughs> early access, <laughs> go to leq.com. Uh, and my email is simply door at intuitionrobotics.com. No spam, please, but you're welcome to, to contact. To be part of the beta, just to clarify, maybe if my grandmother's interested, is it does it cost money? Like, are you buying the product? No, 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 no. It doesn't wow. cost money. Are you having a problem um, filling these things? No, not at all. Not at all. It's oversubscribed, but we are taking <laughs> time to make sure that our beta customers give us a good reach as far as demographic. You know, are there a couple living together or maybe only one of the spouses survived the other one? Where do they live? What have they done before? How often do they use technology? Which type of technology? Do they live in California or in Florida? You know, Very so cool. gotcha, we're looking gotcha, for statistically gotcha. meaningful. All right. So really, really cool. Thanks again, leq.com. That's it. In the next episode, number 35, Tzvika Agassi, co-founder of Sally and I, shares about the long journey of Sally and I that is just getting started. Thanks for listening. 